Whether it's a river runs through it or the oxbow incident, the last best place or legends of the fall, why is it that so many of the books that have defined the American West come from the same place? This is Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott. And we're going to spend the next half hour talking about two books from Montana, one from the past and one from the present, in an effort to understand what it is about this magical state that inspires so much incredible writing and so many memorable books. So pour yourself a good strong cup of coffee and spread some huckleberry jam on your toast. And welcome to Breakfast in Montana. For this episode, we're going to talk about two books, a collection of short stories called Survivors Said by Matt Pavlich, and a novel called Montana Gothic by Dirk Van Sickle. One of the things that's fascinating to me about these books, um, both incredible writers, very accomplished um, craftsmen, like they, you can tell they both put a lot into their their craft. Um, and I think that applies from the level of the sentences, which are really carefully wrought, but also to the organization, the plot, the the way they're put together. It's like they really spend a lot of time thinking about what they were doing. Yeah. Like they they take it seriously. So why, you know, why have we never heard of these guys, you know? Um, to me, that's the real connection between these two books Mm -hmm. um you know matt pavlich is writing right now dirk van sickle died a few years ago but i don't think in his lifetime hardly anybody knew that he'd written this book montana gothic um and four other books and matt pavlich is um you know an award-winning writer yeah the best writer you've never heard of right yeah not a distinction that you want to have and and i think it's a shame um I also, you know, I was thinking about the fact that um, it feels like when people think of Montana literature, they have a sort of a, a specific idea in mind of what to expect, and that maybe both of these guys are too far outside of the, or not, I shouldn't say too far, but they're outside of that norm, so. Well, neither one of them, for example, are, are in the last best place. Which is a crime. Um, it so happens that I wrote this essay about five years ago now called Montana Gothics about this novel, Dirk Van Sickle's novel, and a bunch of other stuff that I thought had gotten short shrift in in academia and just in the general sense of what Montana literature is. And I opened this essay talking about the novel. I just want to read this passage. It starts with a quote, Goddamn good-for-nothing country, remarks <laughs> one of the characters in Dirk Van Sickle's Montana Gothic, 1979, one of the finest and regrettably most neglected novels to emerge from the treasure state. This disparaging assessment of the Montana landscape sounds a dissonant note whose effect succeeds partly because it appears so contrary to the usual voices. It's a little like an off-key fiddle shrieking away at the back of the orchestra. Writers of books set in Montana don't usually utter such blasphemies, but then Montana Gothic is not the usual Montana novel. Mm. In place of the expected reveries about endless vistas and haunting waters, we find a repudiation of the landscape. In place of hypostasized husbandry, we get murderous bestiality. (laughs) And instead of all meaning falling inward through some imagined hole in the sky, 
This narrative flings us constantly outward and away from the place it represents. Here's another quote. Montana has no persona, observes another character in the novel. The land is nothing more than a floor beneath the weather. Mm. I love that line. Yeah, I mean, he's not hes not uh, someone who waxes poetic about Montana at all. I mean, he... he uh, and yet... You can, he does in you other can places. almost feel the, yeah. the love of it in a lot of places. But yeah, hes he doesn't pull punches, so that's part of it, probably. Uh, you know, I think what it is, in both these books... It's it doesn't romanticize it exactly. It yeah. doesn't. Uh, it's not save the ranch narrative. It's right. not fly fishing. Yeah. Um, it's. It talks about elements of Montana that people don't ordinarily think of. Like for example, um, it's urban centers. Right. You know where's the great Montana novel of Billings? Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, instead, it's always set in the country or on some beautiful river. And, and while that, I think, is a, a good part of Montana also and what people think of when they think of the state, um, there's a lot of other elements of Montana that don't have anything to do with fly fishing or ranches or, yeah, you know, bagging peaks or whatever it is. Yeah. I was on a panel with Kittredge a few years ago, and he, he talked about how um, the, the Western literature is never going to be complete until somebody writes the quintessential urban Western novel, urban Montana novel. And I think he's, he's right about that. So, But I think when we talked about Kate uh, Halila, yeah. I mean, that's one of the things I liked about Shaking Out the Dead is that is an urban Montana right. novel. It all takes place in... In cities, so yeah, right. Maybe she's the first candidate for that. Yeah, you know the other thing I think that these two books convey that a lot of other Montana books don't is that when people think of Montana, thanks largely to Norman McLean and then the movie based on a river mm-hmm. runs through it, is that it's all mountains and right. beautiful green scenery. When really two thirds of the state is great plains, yeah, and prairies. Yeah, people are always surprised by that when they come out here. <clears throat> there was a good story that I heard from when I was doing research for 56 counties about some family that somebody knew that was on their way out to Montana to visit. And they, they got to South Dakota, and it was too flat even there. So they turned around <laughs> and went back. So if they had gotten to eastern Montana, they probably would have died in the middle of nowhere but (laughs) well my wife tells the story you know she's from portland and when she married me and moved out to montana you know we drove out here and went through helen on the way i was living in great falls at the time and she loved everything you know the canyon Mm. through wolf creek and then we came up on the prairie Mm. and she's like my heart started to sink (laughs) there were no trees uh and she's still here (laughs) Well, so another thing that um, I really love about Matt's Matt's collection, and and but probably works against him, is that um, these stories are not connected, not in any way. Um, and you know, when you think of the collections that are sort of representative of the West, like Rock Springs or um, any of. Um, the Dorothy Johnson books. Yeah, Dorothy Johnson. Indian there, country. There's a lot of similarities between the stories. There's a lot of, there's a similar tone. The characters are sometimes even, you know, reappearing. Matt goes out of his way, basically, to have each story have a completely different 
uh, set of characters, different setting. I mean, there's even one that takes place in, uh, you know, the early part of the settling of the of Montana. There's a there's a, practically a science fiction story in there about the right my distant youth. It's the first story in the book. Uh, the first line of it is this. There was a time about 12,000 years ago when I could fr- run from one end of the known world to the other. <laughs> I was homo something else's. <laughs> a child of parallel line of evolution. Mm. Um, and it's just a fascinating, uh, you know, pre-Anthropocene view of Montana that involves a great scene in which the guy watches Glacial Lake Missoula dissolve. And mm. Yeah. So yeah, uh, I would say though that what's great about this story collection is even though, like you said, every one of these stories is its own unique little microcosm of a world, mm-hmm. there is something linking them all, and that's the right the writer. Yeah, you know he has this style that he can adapt to so many different modes. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Hey, I'm here talking to my friend Matt Pavlich. Matt, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to talk to you in person. We haven't really had a chance to do that much, so no. it's nice to see you in person. Uh, we want to talk to you about your collection of short stories called Survivor Said. And uh, first of all, I was curious where the title comes from. It, I was looking, casting around for a title, and normally when titles uh, a short story collection after the most famous of the stories in in the collection. Uh, None of these were particularly famous, so (laughs) So (laughs) that that, that wasn't a problem. (laughs) And then, you know, I wanted to uh, entitle it in such a way that was kind of generically descriptive of all the stories, and none of the specific titles, story titles, seemed to fit the bill. Right. So... I thought a little bit about what the stories in general might be said to be about, and it seems to be survival oh, as, a, okay. as a big theme. That's good that you mentioned that, because it was one of the other questions I wanted to ask. This collection is such an eclectic... I mean, the, you know, sometimes you read story collections where they're all kind of interrelated. Mm-hmm. These are not interrelated. No. They're, they're all very different, all completely different style and tone and uh, voices so I was curious about uh, what kind of connections you saw so survival was one is there are there any other ones or uh, it's funny how over the course of time enthusiasms pop up in your work yeah, that yeah. you didn't realize were enthusiasm um, usually a musician will appear somewhere in frequently in one of the stories, uh, but I I think maybe they're more connected by their lack of connection. <laughs> my my determination to you know not repeat myself. Yeah, well, I, that's kind of what I was curious about because um, it felt like almost deliberate. Um, they're so different that there's it almost felt like you're trying not to. think uh, the thing about that that uh, probably doesn't appeal to the average reader is that you have to work harder. I mean, you have to make the adjustment in your head each time you start a new story. True. Plus, 
all these stories end with uh, completely ambiguous, like there's no neat package in the in, at the end of any of his stories. No, they're there. all open-ended, very uh, almost enigmatic. Yeah, which means the re- the reader has to think about what it means to them instead of just going along with the writer and saying, "Oh, so that's the message I'm supposed to get." <laughs> Another thing that um, struck me about your stories is that they're all they all have ambiguous endings. Mm-hmm. So I was curious about that. Is that they're open ended? Yeah, and I I know that about them, uh, but I don't necessarily aspire to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems uh, very often my stories end; they just demand to end there. Uh, and I had thought other things needed to be added, and and the story itself seems to inform you. No, this is this is enough, right? So yeah. you've just kind of follow the yeah. your instincts with that. Yeah, for better or worse. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I like you know a, a lot of times I think people want closure, want yeah um, some summation or something like that, but. Uh, I guess a lot of times I find that false, mm-hmm. you know, because you've created this ongoing life or lives, and then to just end them summarily, yeah, uh, on a certain note, yeah, either awful or, or good. That's you know, unless they've died, and even then, the, a person's story doesn't end, right? Precisely, so. I guess maybe that's what contributes to the. Yeah, well, I like that part of it because I, you know, I think there was there was a time when writers did that a lot more often. I think, mm-hmm. and uh, it feels like a little bit um, like the sitcom <laughs> mentality has seeped into the literature where people well, need I, to have that. I think it's legitimate to conclude that people's ex- story expectations are. Are shaped by the stories they've been exposed to. Yes, also. Right. and even literary people have probably seen more teleplays than exactly than novels. And, yeah, and they're they're used to that sort of that, that formula that does usually yeah. include a fairly specific mm-hmm. summing up, wrap up. Yeah, you know? I I think it's valuable to have stories where you have to think about it. You know, where you have to think about well, what is the conclusion that I come away from? Here? Yeah, so. Kittredge once described uh, what he thought was the ideal shape of a of an ending of a story it was sort of bell shaped. In other words, mm. you know, the, or as a trumpet bell, mm-hmm. where it, there's a narrowing down, and then at the end it opens out. Mm. Um, I like that. Yeah. yeah. interesting we both agreed that the best story in the collection was uh, himself adrift yes which uh the territorial press with peter koch printers produced in a fine letterpress edition yeah and peter koch same thing when he read the story he was like that is an amazing piece of work it's an, uh, one of the best stories i've ever read and it's so unlike anything else in the book you've read yeah and yeah that you've read and i've heard matt read that story twice uh-huh. and he reads it you know very theatrically and really inhabits the characters it's amazing to watch him read it yeah so uh, we should mention it's about thomas marr who was 
the second governor, I think, of Montana, or was he the first? Um, I think he was the second territorial governor yeah. after Edgerton. I think right, was the first right. One. And drowned mysteriously in the Missouri River and was never never found. So, so it's ambiguous whether he was assassinated, right, or drunk and died accidentally or committed suicide. Yeah. But the other great part of that storyline is that if you're familiar with Huckleberry Finn, um, Mark Twain's masterpiece ends with uh, with. Huckleberry Finn saying something like, I'm going to head out to the territory, by which he meant Montana. Oh, really? And academics researching this point out that Mark Twain based the character of Huckleberry Finn on a kid that he grew up with named Blankenship. Hmm. And somebody asked him whatever happened to that guy, and Mark Twain said, well, the last I ever heard was he went out to Montana to be the sheriff of Geraldine. Wow. And that's the character that Huckleberry Finn is based on. So that's amazing. You have these two people meeting Mm -hmm. Thomas Marr and the Blankenship kid. Wow. So that's very cool. I'd never heard that story. That's awesome. Original inspiration way back when, before I went to law school, I was working for the Montana legislature. And one lunch break, I went out and, to look at the equestrian statue on the lawn. Oh, yeah. And the d- inscription on that statue was my introduction to Thomas Marr. Oh. And, uh, and the more I learned about him, the more I thought, geez, this guy is lived several novels yeah and of course that it apparently occurred to others uh, <laughs> there are other novel or other writings out there about him some fictional um but i i was fascinated for a long time maybe 20 years with with him and and the possibility of doing that story his mm-hmm. story and um so then I read uh, Paul Wiley's biography. Ah, okay. Which kind of increased my fascination, but the guy I encountered in that biography, I wasn't sure I wanted to live with. Ah. You know, uh, he <laughs> yeah. seemed so single-minded. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he was a Irish revolutionary in his very young youth right. and ascended to notoriety by that and he never really quit being an Irish revolutionary yeah that's true um, but he started being a drunk yeah <laughs> and apparently an obnoxious one because he yeah. was he was sideways with about half the people in Montana at the time right. that he disappeared which is another element in the mystery of his disappearance mm-hmm. some Somewhere of the opinion that he'd been killed. Yeah. Um, I, did you read The Immortal Irishman? Yeah. Yeah. yeah which I, uh, I thought was, those two things supplement each other pretty well. Yeah. Absolutely. <clears throat> I read that after I'd written the story. Right, yeah. But, uh, so what made you decide to tell that story from his point of view? That was an interesting choice. Uh, you know, I just, well, I guess I, I, I kind of veered, I don't know. I've kind of done that before. Uh, a long time ago, I read uh, The Death of Ivan Illich, uh, ah. a Tolstoy story. Yeah, I mean, told from the story. point of view of a, a dying man. Yeah, I love that story. And uh, 
I've used that framing device a couple of times. Oh yeah. You know where where it's a retrospective. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that uh, I, early on when I was writing it, I sent some off to my agent who said, no, "Don't do any historical stuff." Oh no, really? <laughs> yeah. So uh, I thought, well, maybe a novel is not <laughs> in order here. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to compress it. Um, but also, uh, in, in that vehicle, I was able to make him take up with things and issues that he didn't necessarily in life. I mean, there's mm. the whole thing of race and, oh, yeah. um, and uh, part of his downfall was he'd assembled this militia to track down Indians who Philip Sheridan said were fictional. Oh, yeah. Um, right. Well, we also need to mention uh, necrophilia. Oh, yeah, you can't have a good Montana, alternative Montana novel without uh, necrophilia. Yeah. Um, and, that, I, you know, the title is Montana Gothic, so I think necrophilia falls into that category of the gothic for sure but one of the things that i loved about the book was what a surprise it was when it happened yeah and totally. then how plausible the setup was for it right and then the aftermath how haunted the guy is by it <laughs> yeah. i mean it truly is this weird gothic yeah thing that you know he he takes the gothic genre and lays it over Montana in a totally plausible way you know this what is he a doctor or a dentist or I think he's a dentist yeah a dentist who comes out, out to Montana to take this job as a undertaker right yeah and it's and everyone is treating him like uh with kid gloves and he doesn't understand why until he finds out that the previous undertaker was <laughs> and not just you know necrophilia there's also bestiality and yeah um, but, but like you said, it's it's completely like even though it comes as a surprise, it it makes complete sense when you get to that part of the story, which is a, an amazing accomplishment for you know any time that you can write about something that is so out of the realm of the possibility normalcy. of what you think you would do. But you go, you go, oh wow, yeah, that that makes sense. That's amazing writing, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really convincing, and it's. You know, it's a Western. It's definitely a Western, but uh, I think treating what probably really did happen on the frontier with a lot more reality than yeah the way it's romanticized in in Hollywood. Right. Yeah, and I think that's that's another thing that Matt does well too. Um, a couple of his stories are told from the point of view of characters that maybe we wouldn't relate to, but he gets into their skin. Um, I mean, it's just it's just a great example of of really good writing, um, right? And how naturally the writer inhabits the character and right. convincingly. I would say, you know, again, my litmus test for a good piece of literature is how removed I feel from the experience. So that if I'm reading a book and I forget that I'm reading, mm -hmm. I'll go back to book we talked about earlier alan jones uh mm, bloom of bones the bloom of bones you know i sat down to start reading that one afternoon 
and the next thing I know, the sun is going down, and I'm clo- I'm turning the last page. Mm. I was so absorbed in the story; it was so artfully told that I forgot I was reading. Whereas other books you read, and the writing might be great, but you know you're you're conscious of yeah. the fact that you're reading. Yeah. Both of these books are examples of where you are lost in the story. Mm-hmm. Do you, so do you know anything about Van Sickle? He did he ever live in Montana? Um, very interesting character. I'll tell you what little I know about him, but would uh, remind listeners to the podcast that if you're curious, you can Google Dirk Van Sickle, and his name is actually D-I-R-C-K. Um, a woman named Patia Stevens tracked him down a few years ago and did an excellent uh, interview with him. He was something of a recluse, I would say from the 90s on, uh, lived in Manhattan. Mm. I think he was married. Manhattan, New York, right? New York, yeah. yeah. Married to a literary uh, agent. Oh, really? But had more or less completely dropped off the radar, and no one in Montana who had been friends with him back in the 70s when he did live in Missoula. Um, He grew up with the Fiedler kids, so Leslie Fiedler. Oh, really? Leslie Fiedler's kids and Peter Koch were, you know, all friends with, this guy Dirk Van Sickle and when Peter Koch started the Blackstone Press in 1972 or 3 I want to say um, this novel which was printed in 1979 had been in manuscript circulating among you know the Fiedler kids and Peter and this whole group of writers Dave Thomas probably Um, and Peter said hey I'm going to start this literary magazine can we use your novel Mm. title as the name for the literary magazine and he said sure so Peter actually printed Montana Gothic, the literary magazine, in the in the mid seventies. I think that ran from seventy three to seventy six. Huh. Um, that before was, the novel, before the novel ever was printed. Wow! Yeah. But that's the relationship between them. That's interesting. Um, and I don't know beyond that um, where he's from or anything. Yeah, you know, Van Sickle is a real uh, prominent Montana name. Hmm. For a while, I even had a book printed in the 1890s called The uh, Genealogy of the Van Sickles. Or oh, something. really? Yeah. Wow. Um, and I tried to contact him. I sent an email to the last known address sometime in the early 2000s, mm. you know, looking for him. Like a lot of people who stumble on this book, Montana Gothic, by accident, and mm-hmm. then they read it and they're like, holy wow. Yeah, why haven't I never heard had, of this? Yeah. Never read anything remotely like that. Right. And then meanwhile, Matt comes from a long line of Montanans. His mom came from a homestead family. They grew up in the, I think it was near Lewistown somewhere. Um, So I wanted to read this one little section from Montana Gothic. um, Because it's just a, not only is it a great example of how good his writing was, but also gives us a nice... uh, example of how what he thought of of montana itself he thought of montana during the maddening and seemingly interminable bus ride as a 700 mile long eternity of land that started out masculine at the dakota border the endless wheat fields didn't seem feminine in their fecundity but firm and seed studded then the land grew sexless until it was almost sterile sandstone wheat colored but bearing no seeds exploited only haphazardly by graceless brush. Once through this neutered area, Montana 
grew rapidly feminine, the hills rolling together like thighs, a wild, verdant life covering everything, and then the Rocky Mountains. All tits and no smile, he thought nervously, staring down into the thousands of square miles of fir forest as the bus creaked up and over the continental divide between Helena and Missoula. And he couldn't look at all at the bus sped, as the bus sped clinging around the sudden death curves of the downslope, the Pacific side. Just great stuff. It is, and it's interesting, too, because I think if you, if you polled most people, they would tend to think of eastern Montana as feminine, and the yeah. mountains, you know, is the rugged, masculine part of it. Yeah, um, I love that. And he inverts that. that. I, I know. Think I think pretty, that's amazing. Um, Just for comparison, let me read the first paragraph of Himself Adrift by Matt Pavlich. I guess I would preface this by saying that one of the things that is so great about this story is the way Pavlich has adopted the idiom of the 19th century in the way that, you know, Thomas Marr writes. While memory persists, a man must choose to live with what he has and has not been. I stepped off at midnight to end myself in mortal sin. And though the fall from a sternwheeler's upper deck is only brief and mild, I cannot swim a stroke. And I fairly expected the Missouri to claim me. But mine is a certain kind of luck. I happened at once to find an empty cask afloat on the water, and, my bitter impulse spent, I clung to it, dressed for the occasion in neither boots nor trousers, nor even a proper shirt, but only the pistols I'd strapped to my nether garments, and these only for anchors. I sent my colts one by one to the bottom, I continued, I was, I am. One survives and survives, and every survival exacts its price. My God, I am hard to extinguish. (laughs) God, I love that. You know, you forgot to do the Irish accent, though. That's right. When Matt reads it, he does the (laughs) Irish brogue. Oh, yeah. Does he? Oh, my God. You got to hear him read it. It it truly is a theatrical performance. Yeah. Cool. I guess these guys fall into the category of, um, you know, there's so many good writers in Montana that it's it's hard to understand, you know, who who kind of floats to the top. But these and guys, why? Yeah, and why these guys? Maybe it's part partly because they um, don't try to be to be accepted and normal. Um, you know, I, I think of Thomas Savage as another example of someone who sort of turned his back on Montana, but also wrote about it all the time because he loved it so much. Right. Um, it's an interesting dynamic, and uh, I don't know. There's There seems to be a, a risk involved in, in writing honestly about this place, you know. That's true, and I've been thinking also since our last talk when we were talking about Norman McLean and how he lived in Chicago most of his life, but... We had grown up in Montana, so we wrote about Montana. Mm-hmm. And then because that book became so successful, it became so deeply associated with Montana. I wonder if, you know, for whatever reason, he had decided to set that story in Idaho. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, would he now be the great Idaho writer? Oh, that's an, an interesting You know, because you could, you could really understand that somebody, maybe they had some trauma in Montana and they didn't want to... Yeah. You know, Idaho's just like Montana for the most part. Why not set it there? And then I don't have to answer questions about right. my upbringing. <laughs> um, just yeah. what would have happened. Right. That's a that's a very interesting thought. Because it was, the writing, of course, in that book was absolutely amazing. So, I mean, it made sense that it was as huge as it was. Huh. Good thought. 
I was. It makes me think of a panel I was on in. Uh, or I wasn't on it, but I was uh, listening to one in Wyoming one time, and and um, Allison Hagee, who's a fabulous Wyoming writer, although she's from South Carolina, posed the question of what? Why Montana? Why isn't Wyoming or Colorado known for all the amazing writers? And um, that's a it's a good question. I don't. And, and nobody on the panel had a good answer for it either. Yeah, and I've spent a considerable amount of time thinking about it, and I don't have a good working thesis other than, you know, maybe some ancillary premises. But one of them would be, of all of the 48 states, Montana is by far the hardest to get to. <laughs> and I think its remoteness <laughs> is attractive and speaks for itself. Mm. But then I think also... There's a kind of critical mass like with anything. Malcolm Gladwell talks about this in all of his books that you reach a tipping point, mm-hmm. you know, and after there's five yeah, great right. Montana novels, then, you know, other people start moving there. And exactly, then, you yeah. know, look at Livingston. You can't, yeah. you can't throw a cigarette butt out the window and not hit a writer. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And once McGuane moved there, it was uh, like a magnet for a lot of other folks, too. So. It is hard to figure out what exactly. There's a just a mythos or a persona about Montana that I think lends itself to the Western idiom, to mm-hmm. a lot of things that uh, you know people are interested in reading about. Solitude, mm-hmm. the environment, yeah, is another one. Um, and then on the other side of it, you have the Gothic or the other side of Montana literature that you don't hear about, like these two books and mm-hmm. really anything having to do with Butte, you know, Butte is mm, yeah. singularly separate from the rest of the state. People right. don't go there to enjoy the environment or fly fish or. Yeah. It's a completely different animal. Yeah. I think uh, one of the things I thought about is, you know, I, I thought about describing these books as quirky, but I think that's tends to be dismissive. I mean, they're, right. they're not, quirky they're not they're um, quirky only when weighed against the other exactly stuff. yeah right that i people think people would think of them as quirky probably but they're they're really just um different you know like more right and that's what i tried to argue in this essay on the montana gothics was that over against the what miley malloy in an essay called the georgic you know all the celebration of montana is this beautiful landscape mm-hmm over against that is the Gothic, which is all these works about Montana that might be set in the urban regions. Yeah. You know, uh, books that don't think, you know, the environment is the be-all, end-all of the state, or mm. fly fishing is, you know, the greatest thing ever invented. So I guess the main message I have from this this episode is buy Matt's book, you know? <laughs> Survivor said is just an incredible collection of stories. And, uh, you know, pick up the Ben Sickle one, too, but he's dead, so it's not as important. <laughs> and it's is, hard to pick up. It's yeah. uh, It has been reprinted twice, but Montana Gothic is a hard book hard to find. find. Yeah. And, you know, Matt has written two novels, at least two novels, right? Yeah, two novels, and he's working on his third, so. And his first short story collection, Beasts of the Field, won a bunch of awards. Mm-hmm. A lot of those stories are included in this collection, too, so. Um, yeah, so go out and... Pick up uh, Matt Pavlich's Survivor Said. 
Um, for next episode, we're going to talk about two women writers. Um, most recently released book, uh, a memoir from uh, Melissa Stevenson called Driven. And we're going to revisit one of the great classic works of Montana literature that, again, a lot of people have never heard of, uh, Mary McLean's The Story of Mary McLean, although the version we're going to look at is the original, uh, which she titled, I Await the Devil's Coming. <laughs> so join us again next time for Breakfast in Montana. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I love to...